Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. And today's episode, which is pretty thrilling because we're going to concentrate, Stevie, on the violin concerto. Now, first of all, just easy peasy, what is a concerto? Well, as Clive Tallow said, Mm. the violin concerto these days is the rock anthem of classical music. (laughs) it's the name we give to a piece for a soloist and ensemble so a violin concerto is a piece for violin soloist and in Bach's case a group of string players and all the way up to the present day which means a full orchestra as well yeah could a violin concerto be accompanied by literally just a piano or or no no we call that a sonata. Okay. So a solo with piano accompaniment is a sonata. And these are all just names that we give. It's rather like calling a period the Baroque period or the classical period. These are just names because they're specific forms in which composers choose to write a piece. And the interesting thing for me is, first of all, the way it arose, and that's rather simple, and I'll go into that. But the idea of a concerto has remained constant to this very day. There are new violin concertos being written. And I say that because they have an implicit sense of form, like a symphony. They have, what, three movements? They can have two and they can have... um, These days, composers can decide what they like, but it's still called a concerto. Mm. Whereas a symphony is much less likely to be composed these days because we regard the symphonic form as being more rigorously described. I.e. four movements and then one has to be kind of quick, one has to be slow, one has to be kind of... Yes, that's right. Whereas a concerto can be written... Sort of what you want. Look, I started writing down a list which you've got there. Why Um, the violin? Why the violin? Okay, I'm going to put this question. Maestro, is it true that there have been more violin concertos than, let's say, piano concertos? I don't know about that when you consider that Beethoven wrote five and only wrote one violin concerto and Mozart wrote 27 piano concertos and five, I think, violin concertos. Would that be right? But the way the violin has become such an obvious choice for this form is that in the earliest days... The violin was given pride of place in an orchestra. So the principal violinist would be the leader of the orchestra. And sometimes composers led, you know, Haydn, I think, who was a violinist, led and directed. So so the violin, because it plays the top line, yeah, and you can simplify that in saying that that's the melody, and 
everything else underneath it would be called the accompaniment. So the violin has always been senior in that regard. But having said that, there are, of course, concertos for all the instruments that you can think of. There is even more than one tuba concerto, but Vaughan Williams wrote a a tuba concerto. But there's something about a violin that's quite romantic because you always think of, for instance, in a gypsy encampment, somebody will pick up a fiddle. You always think of in an Irish pub, somebody's got a, a fiddle and a bone. Somebody will play out a tune for you. And the great thing is, is that unlike, let's say, a pipe, a sailor's hornpipe, where your mouth is taken up with blowing, by playing the fiddle, you can speak along or hum along or you maybe even sing along with it or play along with it. You're free because your arms and hands below your face are completely absorbed with playing this extraordinarily adaptable instrument. Yes, it can do everything from the most melting, slow, lyrical melody to something which we call virtuosic, which is incredibly fast with lots of incredibly technically difficult things, like playing two notes at the same time. Because it's got four strings and we call that crossing the strings, but you can also play three-note chords on the violin. Now, you can do that on all the instruments, but the violin somehow commands the most virtuosic intent and capacity because violin virtuosos became something of a cause celebre in the 19th century. Paganini, for example, I think we've all heard the name of Paganini, and he was the most incredibly gifted virtuosic of violinists, inventing new things for the violin to play, very high notes and harmonics, and harmonics are when you half press your finger into a string and you can achieve different notes on the string and it's a slightly unearthly sound. And with pizzicato... Plucking. Now, imagine, you're bowing with your right hand and normally it would be the right hand that would put the bow slightly aside and pluck a string. Mm. But in Paganini's day, he was such a virtuosic player that he began to have pizzicatos in the left hand and and would achieve all sorts of sounds, you know, with his left hand playing pizzicato. This is circus performing. But Paganini showed off the virtuosity of the violin, the really difficult technical things that that you can do on it. And, of course, it's got a large range. It goes extremely high. And its lower note is a low G. And then the strings are tuned at at, at a fifth. And from those notes, you can achieve... You can achieve those very, very high notes mm. on the on the violin. There's something about the fiddle that has also got a, a slightly satanic quality. They, they often have the devil. The devil has the best tunes and things like this. You imagine the devil fiddling. He had a fiddle. That was his instrument, wasn't it? Yes, with the devil's interval. It's made up of four tones. All going in whole tones. And that, when you work out the the structure of those notes in its sound waves, those two notes clash. Listener, the, the, the maestro was tapping his nose and went off into a bit of a trance there. 
into which interlude we could open it up to maybe half an hour. We could close it right <laughs> up. We could close it right up. I've got in front of me written a list of literally practically all the composers you can think of. Bach, Mendelssohn, Tchaikovsky, Bruch, Elgar, Sibelius, Prokofiev, Berg, Shostakovich, Barber, Korngold, Brahms, Beethoven, Mozart. Yes, and and it, what I realised writing it, 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 that list out yeah. was that it barely scratches the surface yeah. of, of so many composers who've written for it. Now, why? It became a real symbol of romance. When we think of a violin, we think of its speaking quality. Mm. And that, of course, is because you make your own sound on the violin. And every violinist has a different sound. The mixture of the left-hand vibrato and the weight of the bow. And every violin is made separately. So it's got a different quality. So it became instantly a romantic, expressive medium. It's often used in, for instance, if you're sitting at a, a table for two with a rose in the middle of it, and it's obviously a romantic supper, the small gypsy band will hustle around you and ingratiating lean towards you and play some f- tune on a fiddle. Very romantic and tune. Very much, and sometimes when you want to say bogusly, you know, it takes out fiddle, you know, it's not like, you know, takes out onion to make yourself sob. Takes out fiddle is when you go, boo-hoo, these sad things have happened to me. You get a violin. That's the instrument you go for. This is true. Now, so it's so you, it's not only satanic, it moves your heart. It invites yes. sympathy. It invites derision to a certain extent. Oh, really? That kind of thing. Oh, you know, when you go, oh, really, you are that sad? And you go, much tremolo on it, you know? takes out violin. And it also can do the most extraordinary things. Do you remember Mancini? That wasn't Mancini. Yes, it is. Well, with those silver strings right at the top. Oh, yes. You, Who was that? All, all packed very tight. It Mancini. wasn't Mancini. It wasn't ah, Mancini. God. It was somebody, Eni, and I it was. I fell in love with that sound. They were playing exactly that. Charmaine. Mantovani. 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 Mantovani <laughs> strings. Mantovani strings. They were the violins that soared up there and the silver sound they made at the top. Mantovani's Charmaine. These many, many composers yes, I've got written down. You, you, of course you, I know, and I know masses of these things. What I want to know is, do you have to be proficient playing the violin to compose no, these for it? Are, uh, ah, ah, ah. Well, yes. Could they play? Could Prokofiev play the violin? There are some instances. For example, Tchaikovsky, when he wrote his violin concerto, it was widely regarded then... Mm as being impractical and impossible. Sort of unplayable, you mean? Yes, yes. Fast notes, high notes, jumps, leaps, all sorts of things.
And I think Brahms approached a famous violinist whose name escapes me now, why, why, in order to make sure that he was within the realms of the violin and that it didn't go over the edge into near impossibility. Mm. And of course, there are extraordinarily technically able violinists amongst the very great who can play anything. But even so, the composer needs to know Mm. exactly how the violin works. Every composer really needs to know how every instrument works. But when you write a virtuoso work, which stretches technical capabilities, and then, of course, bowing also comes into it. That's that you have a down bow and an up bow. But you have to know what works best, which bowing works best. And think of all that when you're writing a violin piece, any string piece. As a composer, when you're writing a piece of music, what would make you say, I'm going to write a concerto for this particular instrument, rather than writing, let's say, a symphony in which you simply feature a particular instrument? No, well, we'd call that something slightly different. I think the difference between a piece that features a solo instrument and a piece that is dependent on and is governed by, has a dialogue with a solo instrument. That's the differentiation, Mm -hmm. really, because we have words for pieces that feature an instrument, and we'd call that obligato. But what that means is that there is a solo predominantly in that piece, but it's not, strictly speaking, a concerto. You see, the whole point about writing a concerto is that you have two voices, the ensemble or the orchestra and the solo instrument. Mm. And you can set up a dialogue between the two. So the orchestra will accompany at times, but at other times it will take off on its own and the solo instrument will pause. And you can see that perfectly in the Brahms violin concerto which starts very much with the orchestra. And this was part of a form that was developed in Haydn and Mozart's day when there would be an introduction. Yeah. And then the solo instrument would, would arrive. Would on stage, as it were. Yes. Would arrive. Set the scene, yes. And sometimes it would play the same melody that you heard in the opening, but sometimes it would play something completely different, like the Elgar violin concerto. The orchestra sets off wonderfully. Very dark and gloomy. But when the violin comes in, it plays something completely different, takes you into a completely different world. Elgar wrote a a very touching, deep 
piece that's very substantial, almost as substantial as his symphonies. I think it's inscribed with the enigmatic line, herein is enshrined the soul of dot, dot, dot. And you really feel that it's a very personal piece. Take the third movement, Allegro Molto, for example. Maybe that's the thing about violin concertos. It's personal. Joanna here. Maestro Stephen Barlow and I want to hear from you, our wonderful listeners. Send us your classical music questions, queries, and concerns through to hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we'll get back to you on the programme. Thank you so much. Which are the most popular? Well, look... You, I know, I'm looking at this, but Steve, this is very, very long. You see, I Which found... Of the most, you I wrote found the top in bar, your... Mendelssohn, you wrote second... Because Mendelssohn's violin concerto is just... No, I haven't put them in any order. I no, I know, because you couldn't, because your hand was writing too fast. I'm just trying to say from, let's say, a concert master's or a concert arranger's thing, they'd say, let's put... The, we've got to get the audience in. Let's get something they will... It's drop-dead drop cert that they'll all want to hear, I would say, let's say, Bruch's violin concerto. Now, you see, I found that LP in your collection of mm. LPs when we were first married. Mm. That's always been a favourite of yours. You'd recognise it from a second's hearing it. That's become, well, you can't have a violin concerto collection unless you've got Brooke in there somewhere. I can remember my cousin, Max Michael, Brooke. Michael Neal, he was a war correspondent with Reuters out in the Far East and Saigon, and they had the kind of correspondence room. At the end of very, very grim days and the things they had to report on, they would quite often have Bruch's violin concerto on because there was something about it that was otherworldly. The lovely thing, you know, about all the great romantic concertos, it includes Mendelssohn, Bruch, Tchaikovsky, is that they really take you on a journey through the first movement, the slow movement, and the last movement. So if you think of Bruch's violin concerto, it starts in quite a dark G minor and quite slowly. And that movement has a sort of pensive dark colour. And then, of course, the slow movement, which is hugely popular, has that glorious outpouring of romantic melody.
And the last movement is really uplifting. There was something particularly healing and hugely restorative about it. And with the Tchaikovsky, for example, there is a long first movement which invites you in and takes you a long way away from where you started. And then the second movement is a relatively short, quite winsome, nostalgic movement. And the last movement then flies off into almost gypsy-inspired prestissimo of fireworks. What audience at the end of a performance of that is not going to be on their feet mm. saying more, more, more? Mm. Mm. And just looking a bit further ahead to Elgar's violin concerto, I think he really sums up what you can say about the violin in that it can achieve depths of expression that perhaps other instruments can't. I mean, they've all got their own character. You know, the cello, for example, has a lot of the same. Mm. If you think then of Samuel Barber's violin concerto, it's got the simplest opening. And that's written in 1939, in the middle of the European War, the World War, at a time when music was in turmoil, really. so much as looked back, but remained interested in eloquence and charm. There are almost too many things here to say, but you put your finger on it when you said that the violin has a voice. I feel it sometimes like a poet or like a solo, a person walking alone onto the stage. There may be dancers, there may be stuff around him, he may be doing things, but that one person speaking out to you, and that's... Yes. The violin seems to do it People would say the cello as well, but there's something about a violin that is particularly because it's got a, almost a bird-like quality. So as whereas a cello sounds like a human being with our feet on the ground, mm. a violin is able to soar with our imagination. It seems to be able to go like, and of course there are lots of other instruments, clarinets and flutes and do that, but the violin, there's something plaintive, plangent about the I'll sound. Tell you, you see, violinists can make expression... Now, just bear with me. The left hand holds the fingerboard at the top, open strings, and the second, third, fourth 
fifth finger are your fingering digits. And when you create a little vibrato with your left hand, which is to throb the hand on the string, you have all this extra expression in depth and colour. So you can have a very fast vibrato for something very intense, or you can have a slower vibrato for something that has more depth. And you can vary that all the time. You can use vibrato on certain notes and not on others. So all of that extra depth gives it a voice that violinists will do something different with a phrase. And honestly, if you played five recordings of the same phrase with five different violinists, they would all be playing it very radically differently and varying the vibrato, varying the weight of the bow on the string, whether it's a heavier lean on the string or a lighter lean on the string. And that makes it very personal. When I went away on my long tours, in the early days, I used to take a huge boom box, which was, what, about two feet in length and six inches deep, and it had two cassette decks on it and radio and CDs as well. And I used to take a collection of CDs. If I was going away for 10 weeks, I wanted some music that I could occasionally you know, just refresh my mind with after a day on Nabucco or Trovatore. And I really did used to take, along with Harry Christopher's and the 16 singing Tally's Bird, Tompkins, and quite a lot I took Britain's Billy Budd, the opera. Mm. I also took a lot of violin concertos. Did you? Yep. Because there was something about the relationship of listening to a soloist, a solo violinist playing different concertos. So someone who moved me greatly was Heifetz, Yasha Heifetz, who was such a wonderfully virtuoso player. He could do anything. But he also had a very personal voice in his sound and his vibrato and his musicality. And I used to take Vieuxton's violin concertos conducted by Malcolm Sargent, I'd never heard of Vieton, which is spelt old times. Yes. It? French yes. word for old times. He wrote several violin concertos. They're wonderful works. Take the first movement of Vieton's fifth violin concerto, music which had almost been forgotten over the years. In the hands of Yasha Heifetz, the violin soars and sings. It's truly beautiful. to choose one to go out with, Maestro. Which of those? You, like would, you would say Bruch, wouldn't no, I'd you? No, I'd like to go out with Beethoven. Beethoven. And what would I say? Well, because I want to be always trying to interest people in... We're going for Vieton, aren't we? No, no, well, oh, well, well, no, well, no I hope no. we've heard a little bit of Vieton. Yes, we have. I'm till familiar now. with So him. I would say Sibelius. The maestro. 
He only wrote one violin concerto, which is symphonic in scope and has an extraordinary cadenza for the soloist that is just remarkable. been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge, and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson, and our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. Charmaine, written by Anunzio Paolo Montevani. The record label was GRR Music. Violin Concerto in D Major, Opus 35, Allegro Moderato, written by Tchaikovsky, performed by Yehundi Menahin and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Conducted by Sir Adrian Bolt. The record label was Parlophone Records Limited, a Warner Music Group company. Violin Concerto in D Major, Opus 77, Allegro Non Troppo Cadenza. Written by Johannes Brahms. Performed by Gideon Kramer, Leonard Bernstein, and the Vienna Philharmonic. The record label was Deutsch Grammophon. Violin Concerto in B Minor, Opus 61, Allegro. Written by Sir Edward Elgar, performed by Nigel Kennedy and the London Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Vernon Hadley. The record label was Parlophone Records Limited, a Warner Music Group company. Violin Concerto in B Minor, Opus 61, Allegro Molto. Written by Sir Edward Elgar, performed by Nigel Kennedy and the London Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Vernon Hadley. The record label was Parlophone Records Limited, a Warner Music Group company. Violin Concerto No. 1 in G Minor, Opus 26. Vorspiel, Allegro Moderato, written by Max Brook and performed by Chloe Hanslip. The record label was Warner Classics, Warner Music UK. Violin Concerto No. 1 in G Minor, Opus 26. 2. Adagio, written by Max Brook and performed by Chloe Hanslip. The record label was Warner Classics, Warner Music UK. Violin Concerto No. 1 in G Minor, Opus 26, 3, Finale, Allegro Energico, written by Max Brook and performed by Chloe Hanslip. The record label was Warner Classics, Warner Music UK. Violin Concerto in D Major, Opus 35, Finale, Allegro Vivasimo, written by Tchaikovsky and performed by Yehundi Munahin and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Sir Adrian Bolt. The record label was Parlophone Records Limited, a Warner Music Group company. Violin Concerto, Opus 14, 1, Allegro, written by Samuel Barber and performed by James Buswell, and the Royal Scottish National Orchestra conducted by Marin Alsop. The publisher was G. Shermer Limited, 
and the record label was Naxos. Violin Concerto No. 5 in A minor, Opus 37, Allegro non troppo, written by Henry Viettampe and performed by Yasha Heifetz, the new Symphony Orchestra of London, conducted by Sir Malcolm Sargent. The record label was Sony Music Entertainment. Violin Concerto in D minor, Opus 47, 1, Allegro Moderato, written by John Sibelius and performed by Frank Peter Zimmerman and the Helsinki Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by John Storgards. The publisher was Shop Music Limited and the record label was on Dean. <laughs> 